Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the next edition of the Streamtime Sports Podcast. My name is Chris Soam, the community lead at Sports Pro Media, joined as always by our CEO, Nick Meacham. Today's going to be a bit of a Hang special episode. Hang on a episode. sec there, Chris. Oh. It's not just Nick Meacham you're joined by today, is it? Uh, maybe. Let's start the episode properly. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm head of events content here at Sports Pro. And I'm joined by Tom Bassam, our off-platform editor, and our brothers in arms at the Streamtime Sports Podcast. Oh, man, this is such a big moment, George. As much as we've debated about who brings more to the plate from a podcasting perspective, it's like that moment where every young son thinks he can take on his father and, you know, the father just has to put him back in his place. Is this where you're Darth Vader and I'm uh, Anakin Skywalker? Oh, hang on, that's the same person. Uh. Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to know we're working with a professional. (laughs) Well, it's good to to be joined by you guys. It's good that the Sports Pro podcasters... um, taking the time to support you guys and, you know, help with the cross-pollination across our listener base. Well, you guys haven't looked at the numbers lately. We're not competitive and, uh, at all. seen that on Spotify. We have more number one fans, number five fans, no, top five fans and top ten fans than you guys. So uh, might need to just you check out You have to be that. selective about, about where your fans are coming from. I think you really know uh, where who's the daddy in this, in this situation. And uh, for once, Nick, it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sharing some data around later. Don't you worry. The good news is that it's time for Spotify unwrapped so we can start seeing people's uh, people's stories and see see who the real winner is. I wonder what Spotify wrapped looks like. Is that where basically all the data is hidden from you and you've got to click <laughs> go one by one to find out the, the real information? Well, George, why don't you go ahead and let everybody know what we're about to do over the next 45 minutes. There's a little bit of a competition between the two podcasts. Thank you, Chris. Well, as listeners can probably hear, there's always a bit of friendly competition between the Sportsway podcast and Streamtime Sports. And today we thought we'd put that into a bit more of a formal arena by taking on some debates. So we're going to be debating three different topics. I am biased because they were hand-selected by me, but hopefully they are representative of some of the interesting issues going on in the industry. We'll be taking two separate sides, Sportsway podcast representing one and Streamtime Sports representing the other. And we're always welcome to hear in the comments or anywhere else who the real winner is today. Should we start with the first first motion team? Let's do it. Go on. Well, I know this is a this is a topic fairly close to Chris Stone's heart, but the first topic is this house believes that Premier League broadcast piracy is both fair and inevitable. Now kicking us off saying it is both fair and inevitable is Streamtime Sports. I'll take this one, Nick. I got this. Chomping at the bit to go. So, can't wait. Before diving into the statement, which is, this house believes the Premier League piracy is both fair and inevitable, George, I would like to begin with some undisputable objective facts. Currently, of the 380 Premier League fixtures, only 52 of them can be legally viewed in the UK. From a pricing perspective, Sky Broadband Plus TV, which is inclusive of Sky Sports and BT Sports, comes in at £91 a month. BT Broadband, which includes Sky Sports and BT Sports, comes in at £77 per month. Add an Amazon Prime, £9 a month. And then your TV license, which is only a UK thing, but it is an extra £13 a month. Roughly, this is £106 a month, which works itself out to about £1,270 per year. Currently, that is more expensive than 18 of the 20 clubs' season tickets. Now, 
if we break that down a little bit further, because I once posted on LinkedIn and someone argued with me that actually 1,270 pounds for 200 games breaks down to about 635 per match, which is actually a bargain price. But that's not really reflective of how fans consume sports. Outside of those true matchups where you get Man City versus Arsenal, most people don't watch games of clubs they don't support. Now, I will admit it was a little difficult to find the stats on this, but I did find the stats on who's been on TV so far. If you extrapolate that data on the frequency with which Premier League clubs have been shown on TV so far through the 2023-2024 season, if you did that over 38 games, it breaks down to Bournemouth would be on TV seven times, which works out to 181 pounds per game. Burnley would have nine games, which works itself out to 141 pounds per game. Sheffield and Fulham would come in at 11 games, which is 115 pounds per game. And then my beloved West Ham would be on TV 18 games and break itself down to 71 pounds per game. Still worth it? Honestly, George, not worth it. And just to add some final context from an international perspective, uh, all of these countries have access to all 380 Premier League games. The USA has NBC and Peacock between its free-to-air um, and its subscription product. It's $9.50 per month. DAZN has all the access in Spain, 380 games for £11 a month. In the Nordics, you have Net Group for £26 a month. And now Canal Plus in France, Switzerland, and the Czech Republic, you can get all 380 games for £19 a month. Honestly, George, I don't know when you look at all those statistics how the Premier League and its broadcast partners can look at the price of £106 per month and say that they should not expect people to be pirating their content in the UK. One simple question for you, Chris. I would like to drive a Lamborghini. Does that mean I can I can steal it? I can't afford to buy a Lamborghini. Should I steal one instead? I wouldn't say a Lamborghini is necessarily something that you know everybody strives to drive, whereas something like Premier League <laughs> football. I mean, here's the thing, George. England likes to call itself, you know, the home of football. You chant football is coming home, but as far as I can tell, no one in the country can actually watch football. If I can chime in for a second, uh, firstly, if all of your podcasts are like this, God, I don't know how many, how, how you have listeners <laughs> in the slightest. Um, now, now, uh, sorry, Tom, let's sorry, not get personal. Um, but uh, look, the question here is, uh, it, it, like, is it fair? And who, who are we talking about this being fair to, right? Like, uh, is piracy fair to the people who, um, who create the content? No, because they're not being paid for it. Is it is it fair to the people that distribute the content? No, they're not being paid to it. So who, who who are we talking about this being fair to? The people that are using something that is illegal? Like why do people who why do people who are using using illegal services deserve fairness? Like, um, I I think that's kind of for me the crux of this argument, right? Like the the Premier League as it stands, as it was established, is a paid for product, and within that, like, and that is covered by certain legal rules if you want to go outside of that then the idea that it's it's fair that you can pirate it is clearly incorrect because it's, it's quite simple it's black and white piracy isn't fair like that's the that's the, the simple tenet of it anything anything over and above that like I, I don't know where i don't know where you start this argument to be honest chris you can talk about you can talk about numbers you can talk about paying for things but like there is no God-given right to watch a game in Premier League football. But I think that the word fair is an important one here, which can be taken in a few different ways. Fair is in the eyes of, who are we talking here? In the eyes of the fan, is it fair to pay for those, those extensive costs? No. 
no, it's not fair, and that's why they follow and use pirated platforms consistently. We've heard consistently across all events we run online and various studies that show Gen Z, the younger audiences, don't think and don't understand why they need to be paying for anything. In their eyes, getting it for free is the fairer and more logical way of consuming that content. Uh, whether it's fair from a legal perspective is a different a different ball game and not something that can't be uh, unconsidered. But I think it is fairly inevitable that um, people will pirate content if it's easy. And piracy is now easier than ever to not only do, but also get access to. Uh, and that's why it is, I think, something that's never going to go away, even when they finally deal with that godforsaken 3 p.m. blackout rule in the UK, even if that goes away, it ain't going to stop people magically and they're not going to start paying thousands of pounds uh, or thousand pounds plus a year to subscribe to something just because that's gone uh, as well. Chris, to go back to your stat attack from earlier, which we're still reeling from, um, in, in your eyes, the biggest barrier to entry when it comes to viewing Premier League games comes from price point, not from access. Um, yeah, I would say it's not a price point. It's an access issue. For me, if you do not provide people with a legal means to watch your sport, it is simply inevitable that it's going to happen. You know, when I think about the NFL, they've got their new um, Sunday NFL ticket via YouTube. The price point's about $450. That's not cheap. It's not as expensive as what I just went through there. But the what remains is, it is there is not on a per-game basis? Where? Uh, the NFL Sunday ticket? Mm-hmm. If you can no, if you combine if you combine all the different pay TV platforms for the NFL and you compare that to the Premier League, would we be talking similar figures? No. But my point being is it's simply about accessibility. If like I would have no issue if the Premier League wanted to charge two thousand pounds, three thousand pounds a year, but as long as you made it one hundred percent accessible, my issue is that the NF that the Premier League doesn't even make that content accessible. What about you know, those poor Burnley league- fans, the poor Sheffield United fans, and the poor West Ham United fans you were referencing earlier, paying multiple hundreds of well, pounds? If I can, per game. I can jump in here. I think the the, the they, point is Chris's point is about accessibility, but it should be both. I think that's in the eyes of the user. They want accessibility, so at least they have the optionality for it. It should also be free, and that's what they want as well. But the fact that it's not even available is what grinds Chris's gears the most and definitely grinds mine the most. So in your eyes, Nick, you think that Premier League football should be free and 100% accessible for all 300 and something games Uh, per year? I think definitely a good chunk of it should be accessible and free. We've seen almost every other sports property that we cover in the world offering a good chunk of their content available through free-to-air means for serving a different tier of fandom in the audience um, audience sort of sales uh, sales and marketing funnel. And at the moment, Premier League doesn't offer that because Sky, just particularly in the UK, I'm talking through UK then specifically, Sky just dominates and and has mopped up all those key those key rights. Um, in other markets, it, I think it's almost always behind a pay TV provider where they um, on all the key markets where those are wrapped up as well. So I think a bit of both would be my ideal scenario rather than none at all. At least at least give those Paul Burnley fans a chance to watch them at least once a year on TV <laughs> rather than zero times a year, um, I think would be the objective. I think we're talking about the UK market, though, because it is quite a unique market. And one of the unique things about this market is that you can watch all 380 Premier League games, um, just not live. You can do that for free via the BBC Match of the Day program, which is by far consistently the most watched football program in the UK on a week-to-week basis. That will outperform every single Premier League game significantly. Saturday night, prime time, you get to watch all of the games. Your team is on there, added analysis. And like, if you're talking about the funnel 
and bringing fans into the Premier League, that like that is your free to access market funnel, right? So if you're if you're saying, oh, it's inevitable people are going to buy it because they can't watch the games for free, they can watch the games for free, and that serves as a tester to bring them into the paid for product. Look, I, I think the idea that the Premier League Premier League should be on free to air TV, like that we're so far from we're so far like that's so far in the rear view that that is just simply not how the league was established the, the league was established as a pay tv product it has always been a pay tv product from uh from 1992 onwards it was built with sky in, um but tom in the same way that's that, not going to in, change in the same soon. way that this is how the younger generation is growing up as well they're not going to be ready to and over time the premier league will start to have less engagement with younger audiences who aren't willing to pay to jump, make that leap from match of the day highlights at 10 o'clock, whatever in the evening, where people that have kids are already uh, tucking themselves into bed, hopefully, because they've uh, been um, struggling to stay up that late. So you're going to miss a lot of opportunity to engage audiences. And we all know that live is still king, right? Live is what people really want to tune in for. And a Burnley fan might be really excited to watch the, their final, the final set of highlights on match of the day at 11.30 in the evening. But the reality is they also want to be really engaged with that live match and be able to share that a moment with their friends and friends and family and other Burnley ticket holders. Of course, Burnley's getting a lot of coverage on this pod, more than we've ever given them. <laughs> <laughs> but Nick, isn't that the beauty of market dynamics in sport? In that if someone's price point is too high and their accessibility is too low and fans aren't willing to pay for it, well, then they won't achieve their revenues and therefore their business becomes unviable and they have to respond. Whereas essentially forcing a business to set its price points or set its accessibility at a certain level purely because fans want it it doesn't you know doesn't will go against every other tenant i mean where where would you stop from there if the fan experience becomes the apex of every business decision when it comes to or every decision when it comes to the premier league chris i'll let you come in in a second then um then where does where is that line drawn? Why doesn't tickets become free to stop touts taking place? Good idea, or George. To, to allow everyone to access game. Yeah, <laughs> but why why aren't food and drink? Why isn't food and drink free in the grounds? Why isn't everything free for everyone? It'd be great so, if it was. I think you know a great example of this, and it always gets brought up when it comes to piracy is Spotify. Like I'll admit, I was someone that illegally downloaded all of my music. Couldn't even tell you how many different viruses I downloaded <laughs> on my computer with LimeWire and Napster and everything else. I think I can hear sirens point. in the background. <laughs> I confess that, Chris. Take them away. But, but nonetheless, Spotify eventually created a product where the experience was positive enough. It met where I was willing to pay that it did work. I don't think anyone is asking. I'm certainly not necessarily asking that every game needs to be on free to air. I think there's plenty of other solutions that I'd be happy to talk about what those alternatives are. That you don't have to go to that level of extreme. But at the moment, we're talking about over 100 pounds a month in the midst of a living crisis to watch just over 50% of content. Like we can talk about supply, demand and those sorts of things and what people are willing to pay for. It's just not even remotely close when you think about the access that people have in other so countries. So Chris, what it sounds Chris, like, I think you've just taken, sorry. Uh, so Chris, what it sounds like to me is you're saying that um, it's like, you're saying streaming isn't fair. And actually that the answer here is that uh, the price point just needs to be a little bit lower. Like there was a YouGov, stir exactly. day, a YouGov study done a couple of months ago, which said that around 5.1 million adults in the UK um, admitted to watching sports via legal, legal streaming websites. I think we have on the Sports Pro Media Hub great, great access tool if you haven't checked it out yet. Um, Finally, something we can agree on, the, Tom. The, 
is that the UK media, the UK pay TV market is around 14 million. So like you've got to think that even if you're, if you're, even if that's like, there's a bit of crossover there, the thought there's a 14 million person pay TV market, yet there's 5.1 million people who are in that pay TV market, not paying for Sky or not able to access the games. That, that, that maybe then if the price point comes down, there is a, like that it's not, uh, it doesn't have to be inevitable that piracy is the answer. It just has to be perhaps that the price point is lower. And then you could, you'd, you'd increase that overall number. And actually then the, the sort of result would probably be if you had more people subscribing on the pay TV side, on the pay side, then the number could come down because they don't need as many subscribers in order to meet the, uh, in order to balance the books when it comes to the, uh, the, uh, rights cost ultimately this this to wrap this up i, I suppose we're getting closer to wrapping up so i know george you're steering the the ship here at, at your convenience but um ultimately the question is about whether it's inevitable right and the premier league as a product is the most gated content as an international proposition out of any other sports product you think about particularly on a domestic level the nfl the nba and those other other major sports properties, the IPL, et cetera, all of those properties have accessibility to at least scratch an itch, I suppose, to connect with fans through free-to-air means as well as having some of that content in various gated channels. In this instance, the, 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 the paywall is so uh, rigid in in Sky and indeed a whole host of other markets where a pay-to-be provider has taken those rights, not just in the UK, a bunch in Asia as well. That that is creating does create an inevitability for particularly for younger digital savvy audience savvy audiences going. If you've got to pay a thousand pounds or a couple of hundred dollars a, a year to get access, or click three buttons on these incredibly um, advanced pirated websites and get it for free with next to no blowback ever, because piracy is rampant across the world. It's not a hard decision for anyone who's who anyone who uses. Uh, I, I use well, uses digital devices and, and platforms and, and laptops, etc., to, to access that, and that's ultimately why it's inevitable. I also, if I can push back on one thing, and that is that all piracy services are free. Lots of people pay for piracy services. They they do so, like you said, for the convenience and the access. And actually, the Premier League is answering this, right? They've just sold their rights for the next cycle, uh, new four-year deal. 70% of the games from the league are going to be on show. And I can bet that those are probably going to be, the, the, the 30% that aren't going to be on show in the UK are probably those games that people don't want to watch. And by that, I mean West Ham versus Crystal Palace like uh the the interest there low um so like it, it to me it, like it i think we're getting towards a point where you're going to have that pretty easy click click yet yeah, watching the game because that's going to be sky glass that's going to be discovery plus that's going to be now tv now if if those if those companies are successful and they market their product well they will see subscriber numbers goes up you think therefore you're providing that better value for money for your customer so I don't think that um, I think we've I think we've established pretty conclusively that piracy is not fair because of the people that lose out in this situation, and the idea that um, and the idea that is inevitable. Well, by the end of the decade, we could we could see a case where that's certainly um, we could, we could certainly be getting to a point where it definitely isn't too. And I would love to see it. Like I said, my, my main issue is accessibility. I would love to see the Premier League do something akin to what the NBA is doing, what Major League Baseball is doing, where you could buy a single team pass 
you know, things like that where you could follow if you were a Burnley of the world, of a, a Newcastle of the world, someone like that, where you could exclusively pay for the content that you wanted to watch. The Premier League, whether you know, while it's taking step forward, and I agree the new deal is better for the fans, it's still massively behind what other premium rights holders are doing in terms of creating accessibility for content. Beautifully put, Chris. Should we move on to the to the so second who won motion? That? Steve, are you going to talk for 15 I mean, I'm not minutes? Quite as in- <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I'm not quite as interested on this one. But go yeah, ahead. I can, I can stay quiet for 15 minutes. This is going to be great. <laughs> Don't no, Tom. I want you. Uh, I want you razzed up for this one. So, next next motion is this house believes that the IPL rights deal from 2023 to 2027 is the most significant of the century. Now, arguing in favour that it is the most significant of the century is, unsurprisingly, the Sports Pro podcast, and against is Streamtime Sports. Um, I would invite someone from the Sports Pro podcast to kick us off, but I guess that is opening the door for myself. Uh, so slightly, I feel like we might end up with a um, mutiny by I, the end of these fifteen minutes, where Tom yeah. might come, come to the other side just for spite. But let's uh, see what happens. I'll still fight that corner till the cows come home. But my actually, my question is to you, Nick, is I'm surprised, even though I have forced you to be against this motion um, without having any choice in the matter, it must be difficult for you to argue this, having you know stood next to me in, in our APAC conference where we looked at comparing the East and West um, sports markets. And if we look at the comparison of global uh, sports live rights values between Europe and the USA and Asia, Europe in the USA is $38 billion per year. APAC is just $4.2 billion. Nick, do you remember how much of that is comprised by Go the on, tell rights? Us, George. 50%. Chris, you're getting a stat attack <laughs> right back at you. Now, it's not just the value of the rights that's important there, but it's also the ARPUs per user in the markets. In Europe, in, uh, in the USA, for instance, that's $22 per user. In India that drops to just $2.2 per user. So we have a property that is worth 50% of a three and a half billion consumer market, but with a measly ARPU of $2. It's an extraordinary sum to be spending without clear financial returns or limited financial returns from the outset. So I think that this is a deal that not only flies in the face of traditional economics, but is actually reshaping the way that sports is monetized across a whole continent. Before I go into why, do you, do you want to... Let, let me know, jump before in. Before I, I end up let, the next 14 yeah, minute monologue. Me, yeah, I'll let you have a well, Otherwise, back. it'll be just the George show for, four, uh, for 40 minutes. Look, I, I, I get your point, and I think the value of the deal is is super significant, and you've, you've raised and highlighted that. In fact, we did a did that together and all those months ago now and can reminisce fondly of that of that moment but i would call this more the it's about time deal not the most what was the term that we most significant of the century look the market in the in, in india is insane in terms of the scale the fandom around cricket and the fact that there has been generating such little return uh, and, and media rights revenue is almost a travesty that it's taken this long to finally get to this mark and even then actually the return or the cost of those media rights is very very cheap if you compare it to some other its western counterparts now before we start doing that, we obviously know that the economics in India 
uh, is a very different situation to what the Western economics are like, and therefore ARPUs are very different. You're talking what less than a less than a dollar per head, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which we can dig into in a briefly in a second. But my point still stands that the scale of the market and the scale of the fandom in that market, the fact that it hasn't been in a place where media rights revenue could be at these levels, is is truly baffling. And the deal itself is not an innovative set of deals really it's the 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 set of rights have been packaged up in a a not too dissimilar way to what you might see in other bidding um, uh, auctions or tenders that happen already across the world with football and other markets Um, and in terms of you know the the fact that they had a streaming streaming dedicated package and a and a more um, a pay tv package etc available quite stock standard so, so those things aren't actually particularly innovative and therefore the significance of this deal gets diminished again. If you're going to look at other deals that have happened that are significant or definitely could be significant, I think more recently the deals like the MLS and Apple deal could be significant, one of the most significant deals of the century, if it works, but it is a way too early to call that and play that card yet. And likewise, even with Sunday Ticket perhaps being the starting point of, of YouTube TV kicking off as a real established player in, um, in live sports. But they're their ifs. So they aren't, they aren't necessarily uh, in the place where I call them significant yet. But if we looked at them two years' time, there's a very good chance they are. So look, I think the deal is significant, but it's certainly not the most significant of the century. And in fact, I would say there's been more significant deals happening all across the sports media landscape that are more interesting, um, offering more questions and opportunities for us to see what the future could look like in this space. But really, this is just about time for me. I'd have to agree that the MLS and Apple deal is certainly an interesting one, very much in its infancy. But where I'm going to challenge you on some of the other deals that you mentioned is that they are building on established foundations. The NFL is an incredibly powerful property. It's, you know, essentially the the only difference we're seeing here is the way in which it's delivered delivered technologically. It's building into an existing economic infrastructure. It's It's a fairly safe bet when it comes to viewership. It's a fairly safe bet when it comes to subscriptions. The IPL, that's almost the opposite um, is the case. You know, if you think about the Indian market with low ARPUs, the first word that would come to mind is aggregation. Yet it's a deal that split the rights between two separate organizations. And as logic would suggest, splitting two audiences therefore 50-50. So in fact, what it's actually done is it's moved away from aggregation in platforms towards aggregation by ease of access. NFL Sunday Ticket, one of the um, one of the examples you mentioned, it's essentially slapping content behind a paywall, hoping that you can generate enough subscribers and therefore you know cross-generate across other forms of content. The IPL has almost taken the complete opposite approach. It split its li- it split its digital rights away from Disney which has held them previously and the you know a very success a, a very big success story in Disney Plus Hotstar and it's instead said let's use GeoCinema a platform that already has multiple hundreds of millions of monthly users because it has a very strong entertainment platform and a very strong suite of entertainment services let's make that content totally free to access and let's bet on aggregating an existing audience and bringing even more in and making that money back from an advertising revenue and it kind of looks like it was a success. 300% increase in viewership, 300% increase in advertising. And in a market that is representative potentially of other parts of Asia where there's huge audience bases, but very large difficulties in aggregating them towards one platform, it's the chance to say, if you make 
content completely you know free to air chris maybe that rings a bell from the previous debate and the premier league you can bring in those huge audience bases and you can really make a compelling case for advertisers that hasn't been done i would just jump in quickly i would say that those are pretty impressive numbers but the the question here that we're debating is is the rights deal the most significant of the century in my view that's just what the broadcasters are doing with those rights not the fact that they the rights deal itself is exactly is, is pretty stock standard it's that they have an established platform and are using it in a in a way that max makes generates most benefit for them and creates more opportunity than ever and reaches more eyeballs than ever but that's nothing to do with the the the, the deal itself i would just add going on to that you know similar point to to what nick mentioned and funnily enough when we were talking strategy we both mentioned the apple mls deal and i think one of the things about the ipl deal yes it's great everything you said is great but at the end of the day it's, it's not actually anything particularly new it's not necessarily coming up with a new monetization model it's not necessarily um bringing in money that didn't already exist and i think one of the things nick alluded to and i would just touch on a little bit deeper is you know I personally think sports is in a bit of a dangerous spot at the moment, partly what I talked about the last conversation with Premier League. But, you know, we've seen numbers slightly starting to stagnate and it's figuring out where the next set of money is going to come in. And at the moment, the only really people that can come in with a little bit of weight is big tech, whether that's Amazon, Google, Apple. And I think with the MLS deal, having Apple come in, although it's not nearly as big of a number as flashy is what uh, the numbers are at the IPL. It is something completely new. Apple dipped its toes a little bit with Major League Baseball. But with MLS, this is a truly global proposition like we've not seen other words. You know, DAZN's got NFL deal globally, but it's not including the domestic market. MLS is truly global with Apple. And if anyone wants to come in and just flex their muscles saying they have a bunch of money, it is someone like Apple. And if this deal does succeed, it could open up a new wave of investment further from Apple or an Amazon to take a bigger step or Google to take another bigger step that it potentially has a larger impact if it does succeed. Chris, we're talking there about competition for existing rights packages, right? Or existing strong markets. So there you're talking about the big tech impacting the scale of rights in the USA, for instance, when it comes to the NFL. I'm talking about an international market that is traditionally undervalued and traditionally underserved. If you're able to access that those 3.5 billion consumers, that revenue opportunity, if monetized properly, and if those foundations are laid now for the future, that is a far, far bigger opportunity than a three times X in the US when it comes to fan base, potentially, mm. with, with a burgeoning middle class, it is potentially. Sure, for a single market in a single sport, a single market being 3.5 billion people. Sure, but is that impacting the rest of the sports marketplace? My point Nick's, is that with 3.5 uh, billion people, not impressed I, with my saying... maths there. I'm talking about um, the Asian region as opposed to just India. My my argument is based big, big, on big fan the group in China, the Indian market being replicated. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> correct, correct. But we we heard um, we heard at Sports Prey Pack that more than a hundred million people tune into Premier League coverage in China. But the I think the the ARPU is less than a dollar per person, um, or significantly less than a dollar from memory. So those if you're able to increase the ARPU, you know, by ten x there, which I think is very very achievable if you have strong penetration in those markets and a strong foundation. We're not talking about increasing. A, getting a bigger piece of an already big pie we're talking about essentially going from a cr few crumbs to the pie itself that's Which a mixed metaphor that's a mixed metaphor <laughs> i appreciate that but you get hopefully you get the picture tom there. you've been particularly quiet here i want to see what you've got to bring to the table or you're intentionally uh, trying to plead the fifth um, I wish I could plead the fifth. Uh, 
my my sort of my, my take on this is that um, in, in like obviously there's the, there's the business case for this, but it also uh, there's also a kind of cultural side to this um, to this deal, which puts not just the like the IPL on on the map as a significant. Um, as a significant force in the sports industry and in the, the, the global economy, but also India on the map too, as a uh, as a global product and a like burgeoning superpower. So, India obviously is the most populous country in the world, um, having recently taken over from China. This is the most popular sport in the most populous country in the world, um, and that reach is already spreading beyond India, right? So there is a there's currently 4.2 million people of Indian origin in the US. And that, I mean, that's not an insignificant amount of people. That, hence why Times India carved out, uh, Times Internet carved out the US rights uh, as, as alongside the MENA rights in, in this deal because they thought they saw that as a place where this has the potential to grow. And the other side to this as well is that off the back of the growing cultural impact of cricket beyond the borders of India, the 2020 the next olympic games in la is going to feature a 2020 competition now that doesn't happen if you haven't got the ever growing eyeballs on the most uh, important 2020 competition in the world in the ipl the ipl also has bankrolled itself and its franchises to the point where its teams can become investors in leagues and control those other leagues at the same point. So you don't get that level of reach and influence without these kind of mega money deals. So for me, it's, it's beyond just simply the numbers and the how much revenue you can drive per user, but it's a cultural thing too. And you can see the way that, that this deal and the previous big money deal that the IPL got as well is, is shaping the global sports industry beyond just customers. It's, it's impacting the Olympics. It's uh, driving new markets for cricket. It's, it's like truly got a global footprint in a way that the, the IPL previously didn't. I, 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 and it will truly disrupt cricket as well. It will truly disrupt cricket. It will spell the the, the death of many of the international formats. Uh, I, I think, think Tom, you made some great points, and arguably better than George's. But uh, moving forward, uh, I would say <laughs> that uh, Tom, your point about the significance and the globalization of it, I think, are really valid. I would definitely argue, though, that the previous deal, which you alluded to, but the previous deal is what set that off, and not this current deal. Because if you look when most of those big private equity moves that were made in investing into the IPL, and then You've seen them turning to approach, taking that franchise approach of scaling IPL teams and moving them into other markets. That's been happening because of the previous deal cycle, where um, the two and a half billion was something like two and a half billion uh, was done in that in that window. This is a significant jump in in deal. I'm using the word there loosely because it's not significant in terms of from across the century but the significance of that 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 jump (laughs) is bucking the trend we're seeing a lot of other markets but as i said it's about time because the market has been underserved and the data shows it still has a lot of growth in that market just by purely by the, the the burgeoning economy in the growing economy that is India is growing at a pretty rapid rate. It's going to continue to grow. So I expect ARPU to continue to grow up in those mar- grow in those markets, and I think you're going to con- continue to see huge growth there um, over the next couple of cycles as well. Well, Nick, what about the established behemoth that is Disney and the impact that the loss of the digital rights has had on Disney? There's been reports that they're looking for a sale or even potentially a, a joint venture. Clearly. If you know it was to be expected and and something that wasn't particularly disruptive, just a continuation of existing trends, 
you know, you'd, you'd see Disney continuing to thrive just with the live rights, um, just with the linear uh, rights. Yeah, so. I mean, that's probably a tough one to say. I'd say that they, Disney, Disney HQ made a conscious decision that there was a price point they weren't willing to pay. Um, the, the rights weren't as valuable to them because yeah, they had those uh, the rights previously and they made a decision ultimately to step away from that. Uh, that's a decision that's probably made quite heavily at headquarters in US, uh, I would imagine, um, with some support and guidance from, you know, uh, San Jocker we've had on the pod before. But ultimately, they had to make a business decision. So when we talk about winners and losers in some of these media rights deals, right, or cycles and tenders, sometimes we always talk about the winners as the ones who won the rights, but sometimes you have to walk away when the deal doesn't make sense. And it could be that they, they if they did pay a bit more to get those rights, you look four years down the line, they'll be like, well, actually, we, we suffered massively. We took huge losses having those rights on board and, and that might have been the right business decision for them at the time. So I wouldn't hold that against them uh, at this stage anyway. Should we, uh, should we move on to our third and final motion? Let's do it. We'll allow Streamtime Sports to take the floor to, to host this one. And Chris, I know you'll, uh, you'll probably be pretty keen to tuck into this one. But the motion is this house believes that the Super Bowl will be hosted in Europe by the end of the decade. Yeah, so currently the NFL is the greatest single sports property in the world. I don't think that is debatable. The greatest. Um, Just but the NFL the greatest does in every end. We'll have a good go. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other yeah. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But nonetheless, yeah, but nonetheless, it only makes 2% of its revenue internationally. So the NFL is going to be conscious of what leagues like the NBA and the Premier League are doing internationally. It understands it needs to go abroad. It started off in 2007 was the first game that took place in London. Um, in 2013, that moved up to two games. And the following year and every year since, minus the COVID year, there's been three to four games hosted in London. Uh, most recently, we've had the games in Germany. Year one was one game over there. Year two um, had two games this time over in Frankfurt. Uh, you've had feedback from players such as the GOAT, Tom Brady, um, seven-time Super Bowl winner saying that was one of the greatest football experiences I've ever had. So I think when you take into account the increased number of games that's taking place, you also look at the recently launched Global Markets Program where 21 NFL teams um, are operating across 14 markets, several of which are in Europe. I think there's just enough smoke here that there's going to be fire at some point. I think from a logistics standpoint, one of the things the NFL has to its advantage, particularly with the Super Bowl, is it's always been played at a neutral site. It's always played two weeks um, between the the previous game. So there's not necessarily something with the NBA or Major League Baseball where you play a seven-game series where playing at a neutral venue you know, disrupts things or something like the Premier League that doesn't have an end-of-season tournament. It's harder to play something abroad. I think the NFL will see this as an opportunity to really put itself forward where other leagues can't actually do the same thing. Chris, you talk about diversifying the revenue streams essentially or taking a, a, a increasing the the income from that the super bowl is such a, a central cultural piece in the us calendar that's almost equivalent of me saying i know i need to you know diversify my income streams and saying well my, now my whole salary is going to go into x you know you're 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 betting the house essentially on on diversifying they're already beginning to make big strides in europe in terms of increasing the fan base bringing in additional revenues from that source the super bowl is a massive jump from where we currently are do you really think that change is going to be accelerated within the next six years so a couple of things i'll say on this 
I love all my friends that work at the NFL that I've gone to speak to, but the Super Bowl is a bit of a soulless experience, being very honest. The majority of people that get to go to the Super Bowl aren't actually the fans. They're usually corporate sponsors. It's not really... It's more of an event and a who's who than it necessarily is about the football fan themselves. And I'll put it out there. We can argue this if you want, George. There's no singular event in the world that unifies a single country more than the Super Bowl does. And I think they have the comfortability to know that you could host a Super Bowl anywhere and the country's still going to tune in in absolute droves the way you won't see with other events. And what other ways there to say we're committed to international growth and taking the greatest show and putting it on the road? If I can start, I think to sort of go back to Hop to George's point about this kind of being a slightly emotional thing. Most you describe most kind of super events as the Super Bowl of something, because of the fact that the Super Bowl is such a significant event. It, this is the Super Bowl of we horse. certainly do on the This is the Super podcast. Bowl of horse racing. This is the Super Bowl <laughs> of whatever. The idea that you would take that out. Uh, of the of its home market and put it somewhere else when there is very very little evidence that you'd be able to generate in any way the kind of income that you would from your domestic market seems absolutely crazy to me um i think i, I think i read somewhere that like the the super bowl is worth around half a million uh, sorry half a billion dollars to the city that it's hosted in i don't think that's necessarily a guarantee if you were to take that up and put it in europe like there's interest here, sure, but like there's not interest in the same rabid way that you're talking about. Those big paying sponsors, are they definitely going to want to attend? They might, but doesn't they're not going to want to attend and pay the same amounts that they would in the US because they've already had to travel halfway around the world to get there. I'm not sure that you're, I, th I think for, in order for this to be a success, you'd have to cut your, cut your nose off to spite your face. And when has the NFL ever done that? The other thing is that the Super Bowl is played currently. You can say it's taken around America, but it's actually just taken around the cities which ha which have a Super Bowl team. So to take it away from a city and to take it away from a franchise who generate a lot of money from that and give it to a random place without a team, which is not good, which is not not going to pay you back in any significant way apart from the the loose uh, concept of increased fandom or increased engagement. Again, like that doesn't make any sense to me. Like you are, you're taking away something from a, a New Orleans Saints. You're taking something away from an Arizona Cardinals. You're taking away something away from a Minnesota Vikings. You're not taking something away from a city. You are actively damaging your own franchises in order to do this for something which, to me, seems like a bit of a gamble. That's why, to me, this this idea doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd argue you're not taking away from cities because the reality is, unless you're in a dome. The Super Bowl only really rotates between a few warm weather cities. So Cincinnati's never going to host a Super Bowl. Pittsburgh's never going to host a Super Bowl. Cleveland's never going to host a Super Bowl. So I don't really kind of buy that argument because it really only is about a dozen teams that actually ever get to host a Super Bowl. And the only other thing I would argue is the majority of the money made on the Super Bowl, let's be honest, it's TV commercials. It's selling $6 million for a 30-second slot. That's not really going to change. And the thing I'd argue with the Super Bowl, like, is Coca-Cola not an international brand? Is uh, Nike not an international brand? I would actually argue going internationally provides a potential way for brands to get more exposure to, to markets outside of where they normally are, or it potentially op opens up doors for new brands that maybe wouldn't typically be involved with the Super Bowl. I actually don't think taking things on an international stage is actually a negative. I hear what you're saying. like It definitely impacts the cities and how do you prove that that's going to come back to you. But if someone in Europe is willing to host any other event, why wouldn't they want to host a Super Bowl? Uh, I think the, the idea that you'd automatically get the same levels of interest around this game, I don't no, I'd question that as well. Like, because in order to stage this game at a time that is appealing on not just the East Coast but the West Coast as well, that is going to be a very, very late kickoff time if you're taking it to Europe. 
And if you're not going to, if you're going to, if you're going to move it to a different time for to appeal to more European audiences, you can't guarantee that you're going to get the same level of investment from your brands at home. What you're saying here is, I'm going to take a massive gamble with my single biggest moneymaker for a benefit which I can't like, which there isn't a complete evidence that this is going to pay off. I get it. Most businesses have to gamble and do things differently in order to continue growth, but I don't know why you would take the the, uh, the holy cow of money and like dangle over a cliff edge. Tom, I think they're very good points, but I think they're manageable. I think they are manageable. For example, I think that you could find a stadium that could play games at a ridiculous time. And what a party would be, kicking off a match at midnight and uh, playing all night long with drinks and what fanfare, you know, I'd be- You're not convinced of this argument. I'm I'm, 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 I'm all for it. I'd love to head across to like, you know, the Allianz Arena to watch a match and the- be drinking uh, big steins in the stadium until four and four thirty in the morning. You say yes, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. If you're For, watching Anthony Joshua in the Allianz Arena, <laughs> if, if you're watching Anthony Joshua at midnight, why wouldn't you watch Super Bowl at midnight? Because it doesn't last and four hours. Because the make it through for four hours. Well, I can. Well, I can tell you, Nick told me about his trip home from an Anthony Joshua fight. He may as well have stayed. To be for honest, if I, yeah, I would have, and did you enjoy I that one, not, Nick? But I'm sure in this instance, I'd be did able you, to catch the morning, <laughs> the morning train and bus. I'd be able to catch the next day because uh, the, the train to be started by the time I get uh, the match would be finished. So I wouldn't have that problem like I did uh, did then. Um, <laughs> but look, I think the, I think the so I think if they can get over some of those hurdles by. Um, finding a, a place where they could host the game at a crazy o'clock, there would be enough people that would buy a ticket, right? There just would be enough people to buy a ticket, whether it's domestically or US fans. I mean, it's incredible to see in London the amount of US fans that do come across. That this, The tourism aspect of it is insane. So I think they would fill the stadium without any question. We've heard the numbers um, before about what happened in, in Germany with the ticket sales going through the roof, like selling out. They could have sold it out five times or whatever whatever those numbers might be. So I think the sellout's achievable. I think if they keep the time, then the core of the money on advertising is achievable. And then maybe if they're able to ring fence those rights somehow to take a European approach where the NFL can do a new set of deals across the European markets to sell advertising deals. Maybe there's a little bit of a revenue boost. But I do think where why they would do it are two reasons, uh, two possible reasons. One is customer acquisition, thinking more of a business sense, is that we live in an events-based society these days, right? You have, you know, It's about events, not just going to things for the sake of it, right? So whilst the regular games add some value for those that want to go and they're already fans, the Super Bowl adds is an experience that anyone will want to go to, irrespective of them being an NFL fan or not. So I think that is something that can really move someone to becoming more of a fan for the sport. And if they want to move audiences quickly in Europe to become bigger fans of the NFL, then the Super Bowl can definitely be something that can achieve that if they can keep a lot of that base revenue in their pocket. And finally, the tourism bit I want to lean into quickly is that I honestly think that there could be a play here for them where they could get US government investment to support them coming over here is like a real tentpole sports tourism opportunity to showcase the you know US for it's all it's great and good to new to, to new markets in a way they've never done before. Um, that they might be able to get some money to mitigate some of those losses they would make by hosting it in some of those domes they have uh, sprinkled across the US. So there you go. I'd love to be in that. I'd love to be in that room where you pitched out to Donald Trump. That is not making America great again anytime soon. Imagine that if you just brand every billboard across like Munich, which is like make <laughs> making America great or whatever all over the place. That'd go down like a like a like a lead balloon, wouldn't it? Lead balloon. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 
like a rock and a stein. <laughs> One point on that, Nick, is you talk about starting the games at midnight and essentially mitigating against it. If you're essentially going to work to US time in Europe, what's the point? No, of you don't, being I don't have to. Because you may sell advertising revenues, but who's tuning don't, in at don't 3 have to. to watch? My point is you don't have to, but they could if they were. They did the business case and go, right, we could start a few hours earlier. And it still would be in the US at a time that's achievable to fans, for all fans across the country to watch. But if you talk about the risk factor, then when they don't want to hold on to that revenue and keep that Sunday night a time slot, then they could they could do that. I think they could easily move it a few hours earlier and still get a good chunk of that advertising revenue pretty comfortably and open up more of engagement and much bigger audience internationally if they did that as well. But I, I think that might be perceived as a bigger risk financially. I think it's worth keeping in mind just to talk about like the the average NFL kickoff time is 1 p.m. Eastern time, which is something like 10 a.m. you know California time. So that's 6 p.m. European time. You could still kick the game off at nine o'clock, and it's still relative. Like that is within the the typical consumption behavior of what someone out in the Pacific time zone is watching football. Anyways, um, is it a little bit earlier? Sure, whatever. But like this is what I said: the Super Bowl is such a monolithic event. You could put it on at four in the morning, three in the morning. You put it wherever you want. People are still tuning in. I don't think it's going to impact it as much as you think. You see, Chris, you say, sure, whatever. It's a very, very big whatever because the mm. downsides of the whatever can be pretty catastrophic. Nick, you're, you, you're no stranger to big strategic decisions running a business. Would you do it? Of course I would. Of course. <laughs> hand on heart. Hand on heart. Uh, which side <laughs> is I don't know where I put my hand, but uh, I've got a bigger question for you. <laughs> Who would be the Super Bowl act? Let's say it's in, so we say German. Say it's Good in question. Germany. I'm saying Germany because it's the hotbed at the moment, right? For them, they've had such success. Adele, I, 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 w- I would also say it would definitely 100% be in Frankfurt because of the comment I made before about not playing in cold weather. So they'd probably go back to Frankfurt because there's no dome in the UK big enough to do it. Frankfurt, you could do it. What about mm, Ramstein? That is a great question as to who would be the performance. Are <laughs> <laughs> they German? I think they must be German, surely. Uh, <laughs> oh, obviously, if you're doing it in asshole. Europe, you just have Europe, the band, doing it. The Eurovision winner. <laughs> yeah, my my mind is falling short on German acts. Apparently, Milli um, Vanilli is that, are they a German band? Yeah, apparently they are. So maybe they can make a comeback. Well, that is something to look forward to before the turn of the decade. I would end by saying, Chris and Nick, thank you for joining the Sports Pro podcast, but that would be taking us back to the conundrum that we started with. Um, but Tom, Nick and Chris, always good to chat to you all, always good to, to have some of these debate-based discussions. Absolutely. Good, good to finally do it. I look forward to seeing the poll results. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get uh, yeah. If listeners could um, could click on the poll to see who's uh, to won each of these debates on if you're using Spotify, which... Let's hope you all are. Great platform. Um, then, uh, yeah. You're making a front-running guest to be the, the act of the halftime Super Bowl, Tom. Sponsored by Spotify. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that would that would be very helpful. And uh, obviously, as always, uh, leave us a five-star review and stream time a one-star review. Don't listen to them, everyone. Don't listen to them. Don't be pressured into this, these bullying tactics. Keep keep, keep showing the love. Um, well, just honest. <laughs> well, let's hope we can get you know an exclusive Spotify deal. I hope they pay pretty good uh, pretty good f- figures for those sorts of deals now if we keep uh, pushing Spotify's brand in, in the pod as well. So fingers crossed for that too. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time, guys. Absolutely. Cheers.
Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime Podcast.